0: one of the most common objections against the existence of God is the fact that there is so much evil in the world. Our world is full of pain and suffering, disease, natural disasters, poverty, injustice, the list goes on. Given that reality, many people ask how it could be possible that an all-good and all-powerful God can exist. If God could easily prevent evil, the fact that he does not, was well, evidence in their minds that God does not exist at all. Well, that line of reasoning overlooks at least two things. One, it wrongly assumes that an all-good, all-powerful God would have no good reason for permitting evil. We see in the biblical stories of Job and Joseph, as well as in many other places, that God does have a purpose in permitting suffering. Second, those who conclude God does not exist because evil exists in the world fail to account for why they have a standard of right and wrong in the first place. Why do they judge things to be evil? As C.S. Lewis once wrote, who himself was a famous skeptic of God for many years, he wrote this, My argument against God was that the universe seemed so cruel and unjust But how had I got this idea of just and unjust? A man does not call a line crooked unless he has some idea of a straight line. In other words, where does our ideas of right and wrong come from, if not from God? Well, my purpose in the sermon today is not to try to solve the problem of evil or even give a a thorough explanation for why suffering and pain exist in the world. There is certainly much more that can be said on that topic, but I brought it up because I believe that Christians struggle with the problem of evil on a smaller scale. They struggle with the problem of of suffering in the world in a a different way, perhaps. They may not doubt the existence of God, but when the Christian encounters suffering and, and pain in their own life, they may ask, is God really with me? Does he really care? Is he really in control? Brothers and sisters, when things go wrong in your life, when a loved one dies, when your plans do not work out the way you hoped, when your dreams for your life are not fulfilled, you may wonder if God is really there. You may wonder, is God really with me? When trials come into your life, you may wonder if you have displeased God in some way or have missed his best for your life somehow. In your mind, any pain and suffering is a sign that something has gone horribly wrong. Is God with me? Does he care? Well, These are the questions that the nation of Israel was wrestling with in our text for today. You can go ahead and turn with me in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 17. You can also find the text in the back of your bulletin. Well, just just like last week, Israel is journeying in the wilderness towards Mount Sinai. And again, they encounter difficulties on the journey. Trials and tests come. And their suffering leads them to ask, Is God with us? They doubt. But again, just as we saw in our text for last week, God proves Himself to be sufficient for His people's needs. The suffering of the people of Israel was not a sign that God was absent. No, it was in and through their suffering that God made His presence to them most known. What is the lesson, or what was the lesson for Israel? What is the lesson for you today, Christian? It's to learn the truth that the prophet Isaiah wrote about in Isaiah chapter 40, verses 28 through 31. Verses that were written to the people of Israel in another time of suffering, during their exile in Babylon. This is what he wrote. Do you not know? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the whole earth. He never becomes faint or weary. There is no limit to his understanding. He gives strength to the faint and strengthens the powerless. Youths may become faint and weary and young men stumble and fall, but those who trust in the Lord will renew their strength. They will soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not become weary. They will walk and not faint. That is the lesson that Israel was is to learn. That's the lesson that we, brothers and sisters, are to learn as well. So with that, turn with me to Exodus chapter 17. We're going to look at the first seven verses. The entire Israelite community left the wilderness of sin, moving from one place to the next according to the Lord's command. They camped at Rephidim, but there was no water for the people to drink. So the people complained to Moses, Give us water to drink. Why are you complaining to me, Moses replied to them. Why are you testing the Lord? But the people thirsted there for water and grumbled against Moses. They said, why did you ever bring us up from Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? Then Moses cried out to the Lord, what should I do with these people? In a little while they will stone me. The Lord answered Moses, go on ahead of the people and take some of the elders of Israel with you. Take the staff you struck the Nile with in your hand and go. I am going to stand there in front of you on the rock at Horeb. When you hit the rock, water will come out of it, and the people will drink. Moses did this in the sight of the elders of Israel. He named the place Massah and Meribah because the Israelites complained and because they tested the Lord, saying, Is the Lord among us or not? Well, if you were here last week, you may be feeling a bit of deja vu. Did we not just read about this? Was not Israel just complaining about a lack of water? the answer is yes, they were. These verses sound extremely familiar to the end of Exodus chapter 15. Now, in fairness to Israel, it is my guess that you all have complained more than once about the same thing in your own lives. But Israel was confronted again with the same problem that they began their wilderness journey with. Well, there is no water. God again brought a test, and the people responded with doubt and a lack of trust they complain to Moses. And for those of you who are parents, have you ever taken your kids on vacation? Or to go do something fun for the day, maybe a day in Dubai. And and then at the first sign of any problem, it is hot, they grow hungry, they get tired, they get thirsty, they seem to forget all about the good stuff and just complain about how terrible everything is. Well, that's the nation of Israel. They said it would have been better if they had been left in Egypt. It would have been better had God never rescued you, rescued them from their bondage in Egypt. They forgot about all the good that God had done for them as soon as life got hard. And as soon as life got hard, they said, "You know what? Now we don't really want to follow God anymore. It doesn't seem as joy enjoyable as it once was. And ultimately what they were doing by complaining was testing the Lord. That's what Moses says in verse 2, and we see what the heart of that test was in verse 7. They tested the Lord by saying, is the Lord among us or not? Is God with us? As one scholar put it, testing God involves putting him on probation, withholding trust, pending evidence, For the Israelites, it meant doubting whether he who had provided sufficiently in the past was still sufficient now that things had taken a different turn. There is also an element of challenge to God, demanding that he prove his worth all over again. If, against all probabilities, he gets us out of this mess, then we will consider believing. But in the meantime, we will suspend both faith and obedience. For these reasons, testing God is deeply sinful. The suffering and the the lack of water tempted Israel to doubt God's presence, tempted them to doubt God's provision. That became abundantly clear in the people's response to to Moses. Moses rebukes the people in verse 2 for complaining, for for testing the Lord. And then we see their response in verse 3. It says, but the people thirsted there for water and grumbled against Moses. They did not listen to Moses' rebuke. They thirsted and they grumbled against Moses. Their temporal, earthly needs overshadowed eternal realities. But the people thirsted. They were not concerned with who God was. They were not interested in thinking about what he had done for them in the past. They did not care about the promises that he had made for them for the future. None of that counted for anything in their minds. Why? It's because they were thirsty now. They wanted water now. They wanted their earthly desires met now. Brothers and sisters, how different are we from Israel? When trials and suffering come into your life, do you not sometimes ask the same question as Israel? Is God with me? Does He really care? Just ask yourself what tempts you to dismiss or to to forget everything that God has done for you and all that He has promised to do. What do you want now? You want a new job? Now. You want to live someplace differently? Now. You want a spouse? Now. You want something different? Now. Are there times when your own earthly needs and desires leads you to put God to the test? Do you demand from Him immediate relief before you're going to place any trust in Him? Or maybe you would not say it out loud, but at least you think, you know, I'll trust God if He solves this problem for me. Or maybe you even pray, God, I will trust you if you do this for me. God, prove to me that you are real. Brothers and sisters, what is the evidence that this might be your attitude towards the Lord? Well, if you pray one of those kind of prayers, for one. But it's also, how quick are you to complain and grumble about your own life? If you constantly complain about your life or how unfair it is, how much better others have it, well, you are putting God to the test. Friends, if you only praise God when good things happen to you, you are putting God to the test. You can find many people on social media using the phrase or the hashtag, God is good. They almost always use that hashtag. They almost always use that phrase after something good has happened to them, something they wanted, a new job, an unexpected financial blessing. Well, that's not bad. It's wonderful to praise God when those types of things happen. But it is far more rare to find somebody use that phrase, God is good, after something bad happens. The loss of a job. The death of a loved one. But friends, God is good all the time, in the good and in the bad. However, I think that Christians sometimes think that the evidence of God's goodness and Him being with them is Him doing exactly what they want. is Him giving them the exact thing that they had just prayed for in the exact way that they prayed for it. My brothers and sisters, what is your expectation of the Christian life? Now, if you read the Bible, it will be clear that God has promised trials and difficulties in the Christian life. We're strangers and sojourners. We find ourselves in the wilderness. He did not promise that the road would be easy. But if you are His. He has promised to be with you. It is in and through the suffering that God most makes his power and his presence known. The theologian J.I. Packer wrote this in his book, Knowing God How does God in grace? accomplish this purpose of maturing us, not by shielding us from assault by the world, the flesh, and the devil, nor by protecting us from burdensome and frustrating circumstances, but rather by exposing us to all these things so as to overwhelm us with a sense of our own inadequacy. He drives us to cling to him more closely. The Bible spends so much of its time reiterating that God is a strong rock a firm defense and assure refuge and help for the weak, to bring home to us that we are weak and must learn to wait on the Lord. God works through the trials and the sufferings of our life to teach us to rely on Him. He strengthens your faith through trials. He makes His presence and His provision known through trials and suffering. Uh, Israel was is not interested in waiting on the Lord. In fact, they seem to have grown so, so angry about their lack of water that they were about to kill Moses. That's what Moses is afraid of in verse 4. He's afraid that the people of Israel are about to stone him. But he does what Israel should have done, and he cries out to the Lord. He trusted. He asked for help. And in response, the Lord was both gracious to him and gracious to the people of Israel. And notice the way that the Lord provided water for his people. He said that he himself, the Lord himself, would go ahead of Moses and stand on the rock. Not sure exactly what it means for the Lord to stand on the rock, but that's what he says. He had Moses go ahead of the people and strike the rock with the staff that water might come out. He sent some of the elders of Israel with Moses that they might witness Moses do this. Well, God was showing himself both to be the provider of his people But in sending Moses there in front of the people and with the elders as witnesses, he was also confirming and establishing Moses' leadership of the people. that he might not get stoned. He was being gracious to Moses as well. And of course, God was gracious to the people. He met their need. He provided water. Though the people had sinned in their testing of him, he reassured them of his sufficiency and he showed them that he was with them. But I also want you to see that God had a purpose beyond simply providing water for the people. Uh, He had a purpose beyond simply giving them what they needed and what they wanted at that moment in time. He left this as a reminder of his faithfulness for future generations, so that future generations would not harden their hearts against him. Remember what Mark read for us in Psalm chapter 95, verses 8 and 9. This is what the psalmist writes. Do not harden your hearts as at Meribah, As on that day at Massah in the wilderness, where your ancestors tested me, they tried me, though they had seen what I did. And then remember 1 Corinthians 10 that Aminah just read for us. You can actually go ahead and turn there with me in your Bibles, or just flip back over a page in the bulletin. In verses 6 and 11, Paul wrote that what happened in the wilderness to Israel happened as examples for us. What happened to Israel in the wilderness was written down. There was a testimony of God's faithfulness given in Israel's response as an example for us. They were written down for your instruction, Christian. What did happen in the wilderness to Israel? Well, they doubted and they sinned. They complained. Eventually, the whole adult generation that left Egypt died in the wilderness because they did not trust the Lord. They did not get to enter the Lord's rest. They did not get to enter the promised land. The doubt and lack of faith they showed here at Meribah continued, and it eventually led to outright disobedience and rebellion against the Lord. My friends, that is where doubt and unbelief always lead. Now, Israel and their doubt is a warning to you. My friends, if you persist in doubt and unbelief toward God, you will not enter His eternal rest, you will not enter heaven. But friends, I also want you to see that God has given us a greater reminder of his faithfulness than even miraculously providing water from the rock. Again, look at 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 4. Paul wrote that the rock from which Israel drank was Christ, meaning that it was Jesus who was the source of their sustenance in the wilderness. It was through his supernatural power that Israel was sustained. Is that not amazing? Israel experienced something of the presence and the power and the protection and the provision of Jesus in the wilderness. He was their provider. Now this was certainly a bit of a mystery to the people of Israel. I don't think they they realized as they were standing there drinking water from the rock that it was Jesus who was providing for them. They realized it was God, but I don't think they had a clear picture of Jesus. But it is not a mystery to us. But during their time in the wilderness, God was pointing to the fact that he would one day provide for his people's needs through Jesus Christ. He would not simply give them manna, but would give them Jesus, who is the bread of life. He would not simply give them regular water, even miraculous water from a rock, but he would provide living water through Jesus. And like that rock on which Yahweh stood that was struck by Moses, one day Jesus would be struck, beaten, and crucified to provide streams of living water for his people. Brothers and sisters, what is one of the names of Jesus? It is Emmanuel, which means God with us. Brothers and sisters, the greatest evidence that God is really among us is that he sent his son, Jesus Christ, to this earth to live as a man and to be struck down for our sins. He sent Jesus to be with us. He sent Jesus to suffer for us. Jesus lived a perfect life while he was on earth. When he was tempted by Satan in the wilderness, he did not complain or grumble against the Lord. When he grew thirsty, he did not sin. He lived the perfect life that Israel could not live and that we could not live. And on the basis of his perfect life, he suffered and died for us on the cross. Three days later, he rose again so that all who turn from, turn from their sins in repentance and faith will not perish but have everlasting life. They will drink from God's streams of living water. My friends, God has met your greatest need in Jesus Christ. Jesus was struck so that streams of mercy and the streams of forgiveness might flow to you. And all those who believe in Jesus receive the gift of the Holy Spirit to permanently dwell in their hearts. And brothers and sisters, if you are a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, you have a much greater experience of God's presence than even those people in Israel who received manna from heaven, who received water from a rock. You have the Holy Spirit. You have the indwelling Holy Spirit. A Christian, God is with you and he has given you his word that he will never leave you or forsake you. Even in your trials, even in your pain, even in your suffering, he is with you. That takes us to the second half of Exodus chapter 17, starting in verse 8. At Rephidim, Amalek came and fought against Israel. Moses said to Joshua, select some men for us and go fight against Amalek. Tomorrow I will stand on the hilltop with God's staff in my hand. Joshua did as Moses had told him and fought against Amalek, while Moses, Aaron, and Hur went up to the top of the hill. While Moses held up his hand, Israel prevailed. But whenever he put his his hand down, Amalek prevailed. When Moses' hands grew heavy, they took a stone and put it under him, and he sat down on it. Then Aaron and Hur supported his hands, one on one side and one on the other, so that his hand remained steady until the sun went down. So Joshua defeated Amalek and his army with the sword. The Lord then said to Moses, Write this down on a scroll as a reminder and recite it to Joshua. I will completely blot out the memory of Amalek under heaven. And Moses built an altar and named it, The Lord is My Banner. He said, Indeed, my hand is lifted up toward the Lord's throne. The Lord will be at war with Amalek from generation to generation. Well, this event is closely connected with the one that came before, not just because they both took place at the same place, Rephidim, but because God was still at work demonstrating that he was among his people. That he was with his people. Again, God brought a trial to test the people of Israel. He allowed the people of Amalek, also known as the Amalekites, to attack Israel. They attacked Israel while they were at Rephidim, actually while they were journeying. But one thing is missing from this account that has been present in the previous three that we have looked at, both last week and this week. Well, Israel doesn't doubt God or complain. Or at least there's no record of it in the text. Moses commanded Joshua to go select men and go fight the Amalekites, and there is no indication that he met any resistance. The people obeyed. They went out and fought. At least for the time, it seems that their, te- that their testing was producing faith and endurance. And because we have the rest of the Bible, we know their trust would not last. Brothers and sisters, that's why we need Jesus. But it seems as if they were learning something of what it meant to wait on the Lord. Something of what it meant to to trust in the Lord and wait on his deliverance. Brothers and sisters, this is what trials and testing are to produce in us. Faith and endurance. It is through trials and suffering that God makes his presence known and, and builds your faith. Well, unprompted this time, God in his grace proved his sufficiency to meet his people's needs. He proved his willingness to deliver them and demonstrated definitively that he was with his people. As you probably noticed, as Joshua selected men to go out and fight, Moses and Aaron, who was Moses' brother, Hur, another leader of Israel, they went to the top of the hill with the staff of the Lord. Moses took the staff of the Lord with him as he went up the hill, took it in his hands, and during the battle, Moses held up his hands with the staff of the Lord in them. Whenever he held the staff up, and he had his arms up, Israel was prevailing in the battle. But when he dropped his hands, when he got tired, the Amalekites began to have the upper hand. Now, throughout Exodus, the staff that Moses carries, he carried it when he first left Midian and went back to, to Egypt, what served as something of a sign that God would be with Moses and would bring about what God had promised through Moses. is a sign of the Lord's presence and his power. So God continually commanded Moses to use the staff in front of Pharaoh. It was what was thrown down that turned into a snake when Moses and Aaron first went before Pharaoh. Moses and Aaron used it when pronouncing plagues on Egypt. They would hold up the staff and the plagues would come. Moses used it to divide the Red Sea and again to provide water from the rock. As we just saw, what he struck the rock with, it was the staff of the Lord. And so the, the staff was a clear picture of God's power at work. It's not like a wizard's staff. It's not like there was power in the staff itself. It was a sign that it was God who was at work. Moses' use of the staff made it clear that God was ultimately the one delivering Israel. It was his power at work. He could have done this in another way, but he chose to use a staff to do this. Well, the, the fact that it was the Lord at work, it was the, the Lord's power delivering the people from the Amalekites, it was the Lord who was their provider and protector. Well, this was also shown by the fact that Moses needed help while he was on the mountain. So during the battle, God gave Moses a task he could not do, to hold his hands up with the, the staff to keep his arms raised for the whole day. Friends, have you ever tried to do this, like just hold your arms up and out? I mean, you can go home later, don't do it now, but just see how long you can do it. And not as long as you think. It's hard. You get tired. Now, the fact that Moses needed help made it crystal clear that it was God at work. How could the people think that Moses was the one who had the power to deliver them? How could, he, how could the people think that Moses was the one that was fighting for them when he could not even keep his arms raised? God was their deliverer. even though it's absolutely true that God was Israel's deliverer, we also see the important truth that Israel was now being called to to work alongside God to accomplish their deliverance. Like children who begin life totally helpless, their parents feeding them and bathing them and caring for them, they're helpless. Eventually those children learn to feed themselves and they learn to, to dress themselves. They're still dependent on their parents for the food and the clothing, but they're less dependent than they were once were. The Israelites were learning that they had a responsibility now to exercise an active trust in the Lord. The Lord was still their provider. They absolutely dependent on them, but they were called to work alongside of Him. They had a responsibility to work. Faith without works is dead. They had simply been passive spectators in the deliverance from Egypt, they had been passive spectators as they came through the Red Sea. They had done nothing to get water or manna. God had done it all. But here he called them to be active in the battle. Was still God who is accomplishing their deliverance, but he called them to be active in the battle. Well, brothers and sisters, there is a, a great lesson to be learned here for our own sanctification and our own growth and holiness. Well, like Israel, you did nothing to save yourselves. God did it all. But just as Israel is called to battle with Amalek, so believers are called to battle their enemy of sin in the strength of the Lord. Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 through 13. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. These verses encourage Christians to pursue holiness. They also make it clear that God is the one who strengthens Christians to do just that. God trained Israel for obedience. He is training you, Christian, for obedience. Like Israel, you are called to be active in that fight. You have a responsibility to actively pursue holiness. So friends, just take a minute to think about some of the sins that you struggle with. Take a minute to think about some of the sins you even struggled with this week. And would you say you're actively fighting against those sins? Are you working to put the sins that you see in your life to death? Are you doing everything you can to quit those sins? Or are you just passively saying, I'll wait on the Lord as an excuse not to do battle with the sin in your life brothers and sisters, you can fight your sin because God has given you what you need for the fight. And he fights for you. He fights with you. But Christians are called to put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 11. In Romans 8, 26, Paul wrote, the spirit helps us in our weakness. And if we just return to 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 13 and 14 that Amina just read for us. No temptation has come upon you except what is common to humanity. But God is faithful. He will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able. But with the temptation, He will also provide the way out so that you may be able to bear it. So then, my dear friends, flee from idolatry. As God provides the way out, you have to flee. That way out may be a lot earlier than you think it is. It's not once you put yourself in a really bad situation. If you're an alcoholic, the way out of temptation is not once you show up at the bar. It comes way earlier than that. You have a responsibility to pursue holiness. We are to fight, but God fights on our side. He strengthens us by His Spirit. He has given us the way out of temptation, and He has given us the weapons of our warfare, the belt of truth, the armor of righteousness. The shield of faith, the helmet of salvation, and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. So, brothers and sisters, eagerly and wholeheartedly pursue holiness in the strength of the Lord. Notice that Israel prevailed in their battle when they relied on the Lord, as pictured by holding up the staff of God. Friends, so it is with our battle against sin. You must fight, but you cannot prevail in your own strength. You need the help of the Spirit. Need the help of the Lord. And just like in the last episode we looked at from Israel's history, God gave a reminder of his faithfulness for future generations. And Moses built an altar to the Lord in order to give the Lord the glory for the victory. The, the altar, he claimed, the Lord is my banner. We also look at verse 14. The Lord told Moses to write down an account of the battle as well as the promise from God to completely wipe out the Amalekites in the future. What he means when he says, blot out from under heaven, that one day he's going to completely wipe out the Amalekites. We're not exactly sure why God gave this promise, but it's important to remember that the Amalekites went out of their way to attack Israel. Uh, Their land wasn't even really all that close to where Rephidim was. They journeyed quite a way to attack Israel. And in that way, they they stood opposed to God himself and their attack on God's people. It's also true that all people are deserving of God's judgment, so... God was not unjust in committing to destroy the Amalekites in the future here. But the Lord particularly told Moses that he was to write down this account and this promise for Joshua. If you know the Bible, you know Joshua was the one who was to succeed Moses as the leader of Israel. When Moses died, the new leader of Israel would be Joshua. He was the one that would actually one day lead the nation of Israel into the promised land. He would therefore be tasked with waging war on the inhabitants of the promised land. And so this was written down for the benefit of Joshua and the people to remind them that God would be their deliverer. That he would fight for them, that he would be with them as they faced enemies in the future. As the, the battle with the Amalekites was preparing Israel for the future. God was training them, just as he trains you, Christian, for future obedience, For future trust, when the next trial comes. He commanded a reminder of his faithfulness so that Joshua and Israel would not forget this lesson. Just as he has given you, Christian, a sure and steady reminder of his faithfulness through and in his word. Unfortunately, Israel failed to heed this reminder of God's faithfulness. Turn with me in your Bibles for a second to Numbers chapter 13. It's two books to the right. Of Exodus. And Numbers 13 is the record of the spies that Israel sent in to spy out the, the promised land before they were to go in and conquer and take possession of it. So Moses, the people of Israel, they come to the edge of the promised land and they send in spies to the promised land to, to spy it out. How are we going to take this? What's it like? What's in there? What are the, the people like? And then they were going to go in and conquer it after that. Well, if you know the story, you know that of the twelve spies sent, so there was twelve spies sent into the promised land, ten of them brought back a bad report about the land. Well, technically, they brought back a good report about the land. They said, yeah, it's like everything that the Lord promised. It is a great land, but like the people are really big and scary, uh, And so that's not so good. And so look at verse twenty eight of numbers chapter thirteen. These ten unfaithful spies, this is what they said. The people living in the land are strong, and the cities are large and fortified. And then in the very next verse, verse 29, they particularly note that the Amalekites are living in the land. And their assessment of the situation is found in verse 31. We cannot attack the people because they are stronger than we are. Yeah, that land's great, but the people are strong. But they feared the very people that God had already defeated and that God had promised to wipe out from under heaven. The people that that promise and that record of the battle were written about here in Exodus chapter 17. They did not listen to the word of God that had been written down for them. Well, in response to this bad report, the two faithful spies, Caleb and Joshua, the same Joshua that's in our text, well, they tried to encourage the people they call them the faith in the Lord, so Caleb and Joshua are the two faithful spies out of the twelve. And look at Numbers chapter fourteen, verse nine. This is what they say in response to the people encouraging the rest of Israel, but not go in. They're saying, Caleb, Caleb and Joshua are saying, No, no, don't listen to them, and they say this instead. Only do not rebel against the Lord, and do not be afraid of the people of the land, for we will devour them. Their protection has been removed from them, and the Lord is with us. Do not be afraid of them. Brothers and sisters, Caleb and Joshua had learned the lesson of the wilderness. And they were faithful. However, it was the word of the ten unfaithful spies that won the day, and Israel refused to enter the Promised Land. The way seemed hard to them, it seemed like more trials and, and suffering were on the horizon. Their obstacles seemed insurmountable. The people were scary. They again were not so sure that the Lord was with them. They worried about what could happen in the future. What's going to happen if we cross the Jordan and we go into the promised land? They worried and fretted about the future instead of resting in the God who held them in his hands. In response, God sentenced the nation to 40 years of wandering in the wilderness until the entire generation of those who doubted and refused to enter the promised land died. And only then did he bring Israel into the promised land. Well, friends, what is the lesson for you? First, is that faith is required to enter into the presence of God. Friends, if you are here and not a Christian, know that there is no relationship with God, no eternal life. There is no heaven apart from faith in Jesus Christ. There is no heaven apart from relying on Jesus Christ. There is no forgiveness apart from trusting in Jesus Christ and his work on the cross. But Christian, the lesson for you is also that if you want to persevere in the faith, you have to remind yourself in the middle of your uncertain future of not knowing what is going to come tomorrow, or next week, or the week after, or a month after, or the next year. You have to remind yourself in the middle of your uncertain future and your trials and suffering that God is with you. And brothers and sisters, it is that truth that strengthens your faith. So if you, like Israel, find yourself constantly anxious or worried about the future, or if life's difficulties often bring you to the point of despair, turn to the record of God's faithfulness and His character and His promises that have been given to you in the Word of God. Hebrews 13, 5 and 6, I will never leave you or abandon you. Therefore we may boldly say the Lord is my helper I will not be afraid what can man do to me Romans 8:31 and 32 If God is for us who is against us He did not even spare his own son but gave him up for us all how will he not also with him grant us everything And a few verses later in Romans 8:38 and 39 For I am persuaded that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. My brothers and sisters, do you believe these things? The, The trials and the sufferings of your life are a chance to put it to the test. So ask yourself, do you spend more time thinking and worrying about the future than you do meditating on God's greatness, His faithfulness, His love, His promises, His presence with you? When trials come, do you doubt God's presence and power? Or do you lean into Jesus Christ, your rock? Do you lean into His Word? Do you meditate on His Word? Do you lean into His people, the church? Do you remind yourself of His faithfulness? Brothers and sisters, the trials and sufferings of your life are not a sign that God has abandoned you. They are not a sign that God does not care. They are not a sign that God is not with you. No, to go back to C.S. Lewis, he once famously wrote, God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks to us in our consciences, but shouts in our pain. It is in the trials of life where God makes himself most known to you if you will trust. It is in the trials that you experience his presence most powerfully if you will have faith. I mean, is that not what happened to Israel? In their trials, they saw God provide water and food and military victory. They experienced God's presence in a way that they never would have had the road been easy. Brothers and sisters, the trials and the sufferings of your life are not evidence of God's absence. They are for your good. There to, to train you for righteousness and give you a deeper understanding of the power and presence of God. And they train you to rely on Him more, so that you may be able to endure in trust when the next trial comes. But you have to have faith, which is itself a gift of God. Trials are tests. Will you believe, brothers and sisters? If you do, you will experience the abiding presence of God, because He is not absent in your suffering. No, He is ever present. Go to the Lord in a word of prayer.